The following message is from Grace on the Ashley Baptist Church, located in Charleston, South Carolina. For more information about Grace on the Ashley, visit graceontheashley.org. Let's pray together. To rest in you is such a joy, privilege. Stand on a firm foundation and rest in that firmest of foundations. We give you thanks and praise. To be grounded in that truth. To have your word before us. Where we stand firm. Rest in you, knowing that you will hold us through all the circumstances, the attacks of the enemy, through all the pain, through all the trials of life. You'll hold us fast, God. We give you praise. That's why we gather to worship the one who can do that for us. We stray, but you hold us fast. We falter, that you strengthen us. We sin, you correct us. And even through it all, we are held by your caring hand. You wrap your arms around your people. Provide safety. We know the assignment is to get us home safely. We're so very grateful that we have safety right here in the middle of this world. Dark, dark world in many ways. And I pray, Lord, that you give us faith to see beyond the darkness of this time. To draw us ever closer to yourself. To show us who you are. Give us boldness to proclaim the gospel word. Give us boldness to live gospel-centered lives as we speak your word in our daily lives to each other, in the workplace, at school, at home wherever we may find ourselves. We'll trust you to do that, for you're the only one who can. Lord, just grant us grace to live that gospel-centered life and the culture we find ourselves. Provide us everything that we need. You've blessed us in so many ways given us a church that, and a people that love you and love your word. Establish your word in our hearts this day. We thank you for uh, the word prepared for us today. We thank you for Brother Roger as he uh, delivers the message that you've given him for us. And pray, Lord, that you would open our hearts, open our minds 
to the truths that are life, the timeless truths that are life-changing. Do that in each of us today. For your glory and your glory alone. And for our good. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. We are grateful to have Roger Beardmore uh, share the message this morning. You pray for him and listen intently as he proclaims God's word. Thank you, Pastor Frank. I see the microphone is working. As you know, I've mentioned before, I am technologically challenged. And right before I got up here, the microphone fell off of its holder on my belt. So it's safe now in my pocket, and I think we're good to go. I appreciate very much Pastor Frank, Pastor Greg, and the elders for giving me this opportunity to address you, the people of God, my fellow brethren at Grace on the Ashley, from the Word of God. It's a wonderful thing, isn't it, that we can gather together as God's people, knowing that God is with us by His promise, and that we add our hearts and voices and minds to those of all the saints around the world at this hour and in heaven together in a mighty chorus of praise to our glorious Heavenly Father. And it's a wonderful thing, isn't it, that we come together knowing that He has a word for us. We can come and in the middle of the tumult and the trouble which is the world in which we live, we can look to the Lord to speak to us. So let's do that this morning. Turn with me, please, in Psalms to Psalm 2, the second psalm. Psalm 2. Now, we know that Psalm 2 was written by David. It doesn't say that. But we know it was written by David because the New Testament tells us that it was. So we know that the psalm was written about a thousand years before the coming of Christ. The psalm is a general psalm, meaning that it was not written for any particular occasion in response to any particular event. It was not written to deal with any specific situation, unlike many of the other psalms. It is a general psalm. It's written to everybody, for all time, in any circumstance. You'll see that as we read through. He's addressing the nations. He's addressing the peoples. It's for everybody, every man, woman, and child, then, now, and forever. Let's hear the word of God. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain or a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision, or the Lord scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his wrath, 
and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we now bow the knee to you, and we ask that you would speak, speak with authority, speak with power, speak with understanding, and teach us the way that we should go. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, for you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. The island of Malta is a tiny little island in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea. Very insignificant piece of real estate. It's only 17 miles long. If you fly over it, You better not blink, or you might miss Malta. Yet, for a short period, in the middle of the last century, Little Malta was arguably the most important piece of real estate on earth. Because, you see, Malta is strategically located. It's right in the middle of all of the shipping lanes between three continents. And it's right in the middle of all the aircraft routes connecting Europe, Africa, and the Middle East. And for two short years in World War II, Malta was the hottest place on earth, and everybody wanted it. The British had it, and they weren't going to give it up. And Hitler and Mussolini for two years did everything they could to conquer Malta. Malta sustained three immense air raids on average per day for two years. 2,300 major air raids. It was nicknamed the most bombed place on earth. But Malta held out. The British wouldn't surrender. They held it. And it contributed in no small degree to victory in World War II. How did they do it? Basically, two reasons. One reason was Sir William Dobby. Now, Sir William was the general of the British Army who was the commander of the island. And Sir William was a very strong Christian. He spent a lot of time on his knees calling out to God. And 
Others have testified that it was his calmness, his courage under fire, and his commitment to victory that enabled the island to hold out. And Sir William Dobby attributed all to Jesus Christ. His biography, you should read. It's very inspiring. But there is another reason. And that was the God of William Dobby. That was the God to whom William Dobby prayed. And Dobby himself attributed many of the strange acts of providence and circumstances that preserved the island to the direct intervention of God. Military historians, for example, are astonished that Germany and Italy never actually invaded Malta. The plans were there. We see Hitler's plan. We see Mussolini's plan. They never implemented it. Why not? Dobby said after the war, it was because of God's restraining hand. For him, God is our refuge and our strength, a very present help in trouble. Sometimes I think we Christians in the United States must be living on Malta. The bombs are falling every day all around us. I was going to say spiritual bombs, but not anymore. I wake up every Monday morning and I say, Lord, where are the bombs this week? This last Monday, I didn't have to wait long. Milwaukee! 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 San Bernardino, Orlando, Ferguson, Boston. The bombs are falling all around us. Lord, what's going to happen this week? Today, the Christian church is at its weakest point in the history of our country. Christian leaders are calling our culture a post-Christian culture. What that means is our culture has come and gone, and it's left Christianity behind. Christianity, in terms of the Christian church, has lost its fastball. We're no longer the biggest bat in the lineup. We're no longer the chief game in town. Ask John MacArthur in the state of California. I heard a, a well-known national pastor of a large Christian church, a megachurch in Seattle, say not too long ago that in the city of Seattle there are more dogs than Christians. We're living on Malta. The bombs are falling and they're not done. They're just getting warmed up. Now, I ask myself, in this kind of a situation, have we ever been here before? And the answer is yes. We've been here before. And I went through my mind thinking, what's the worst time? The worst time in history for the Christian church? And the answer has to be Acts chapter 4. Those were the early days of the Christian church. It was only in one city, Jerusalem. It only had a few thousand people, and it was under intense persecution. It was the only place on earth that the Christian church was. 
And in Acts 4, the leaders, Peter and John, are hauled in to the authorities again. They're beaten. They're threatened within an inch of their life. And they're told, don't preach the name of Jesus Christ again or you're going to be done. And at that point in history, I would suggest to you the Christian church was at its most vulnerable. It was in danger, legitimately, of extinction. Now, what did they do? Interesting. Well, they didn't panic. They didn't give up. They didn't call for a march or riot in the streets. They didn't burn a single police car. Do you know what they did in Acts chapter 4? They called a prayer meeting. They called a prayer meeting, and it's recorded what they did in Acts chapter 4. Now, this was of great interest to me. We read in Acts chapter 4, in verse 23, when they, Peter and John, were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they, meaning the Christian church, the Jerusalem church, heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit. Let's just stop right there. Did you notice something? What did they do when they went to prayer? They went to the Bible. They did not go to the consultants. They didn't hire a political party or attempt to influence Jerusalem. But instead, they went to God's Word. Now, wait wait a minute, Roger. Somebody says, look, God's, it's not God's Word. It's the Word of man. It's man's religious experience written down. And everybody knows that the Bible's full of errors, and it's outmoded and outdated. We need something new and fresh. Now, I want you to notice what they did. They went to a document that was a thousand years old. The document that you hold in your hands this morning is 3,000 years old. Is it out of date? Was it out of date in the days of the early church? No, it was as up to date as that threat from the Sanhedrin. Further, you will notice that they specifically say that the Bible is God's word. Who through the mouth of our father David, yes, human authorship, said by the Holy Spirit. They said, Lord, the situation is too desperate. We need divine authority. We need the final word. We need a word that will interpret the situation accurately and tell us infallibly what to do. And where did they get that word? They got that word from Psalm 2. Because what they then, then do as they begin their prayer is, quote, from the very psalm that you have heard read in your presence.
Now, what does Psalm 2 tell us? As the bombs are falling on our Malta, what does Psalm 2 tell us? First, in verse 1, it gives us a description of the world. How would you describe our world? Verse 1, David says, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? David asks a question. He looks at his TV screen, as it were. He looks out from his vantage point at the world, and he says, with amazement, what are they doing? Why are they doing it? This is a question asked with horror. It's a question asked with astonishment. David is, as it were, holding his head. And he's saying, what is going on? This is nuts. This is insanity. What is wrong with the world? And then he describes it. He says, why do the nations rage? Now, the description here is that of a raging sea. And oftentimes in the Bible, the Bible describes the human race and the human condition as a restless sea. Now, we know all about seas. Go to the beach today, what are you going to see? You're going to see a calm sea. And that describes certain periods in human history, doesn't it? On the surface, everything appears to be okay. We look in history and there's the the Pax, uh, Pax Romana, the Roman peace. Period of 200 years when there were relatively few conflicts. Why, in the 1800s, there was the Pax Britannia. When, at least from the British point of view, everything was calm and peaceful, they were on top. For me, it was the 1950s. That's when I was a child, living in the Midwest. Those were the good old days. You could go to school, there weren't any policemen. I rode the bus to downtown Dayton. As a 12-year-old, by myself, you didn't have to lock your house. Those were the peaceful days. But you see, what David is saying is underneath that Atlantic Ocean, no, 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 no. There's always movement. It's restless. The sea is restless. There are tides. There are currents. There are riptides. There's momentum. The world is restless. How does Augustine put it? He says, Thou, O Lord, has made us for thyself, but our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee. On the surface it looks fine sometimes, but underneath, restlessness. And then the sea breaks forth. For me it was the 1960s. And all of a sudden, everything I thought I knew and trusted in went to peanut butter. And my generation, the hippie generation, the baby boomer generation, went nuts right on the television. I watched it. I watched Watts burning in Los Angeles. And H. Rap Brown yelling out, burn, baby, burn. And I looked with horror and astonishment as a teenager. What's going on? What's happening 
to the country I thought was at peace. There are times when sin is open, blatant. It's in your face. They're proud of it. They have pride marches. In the 50s, things look pretty calm. But now there's no shame. There's no safety. There's breakdown everywhere. Everyone does what is right in his own eyes. Sin now is loud. It's brazen. It's raving like the raging floodwaters in Louisiana, casting up its filth, its mire, and its destruction. And we are living in such a time as that today. Now, David asked, why is this the case? What's the diagnosis? What's the cause of all this? Where where is this coming from? And we find his answer in verses 2 and 3. What is the cause of the restlessness and the raging of our world? And the cause, says David, is sin. Man is in rebellion against God and against Christ. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. Now, it's very important that you see what David is saying here. David is saying there's three things about this diagnosis, about this cause, that are very important. First of all, you will notice who is doing this. It is the leaders, the kings of the earth, the rulers are taking counsel together. This is not the unwashed masses. These are not the rabble, the mob. No, no, no. They're trailing behind. David says it's the smart ones. It's the educated ones. It's the ones with the power. It's ones with the influence. These are the intellectuals. These are the cultural elites in the universities, in the entertainment world, the arts, music, literature. These are the media elites. These are the political elites. They're leading the way. You'll notice what he says secondly. He says that they're working together. This is not done by one person having a bright idea to fight God. The kings of the earth, says David, set themselves. They, the rulers, take counsel together. Look at verse 3. Let us. Burst their bond. This is not happening by accident. It's not as if they're trying to do the right thing and falling short. This is planned. This is collaboration. This is cooperation. It is deliberate. What does it involve? It involves plots. Why do the nations rage and the peoples imagine a vain thing? It's coming out of their heads. It's coming out of their intellect. It's coming out of of their own thinking. 
They appeal to each other as their own authorities. And they follow each other. It's coming out in the plots. These are the plans. These are the schemes. These are the programs to fix society. Where do the utopias come from? This is what David's talking about. And we see it again and again in human history. Science, that's the answer, say the scientists. Education, that's the answer, says John Dewey and others. Socialism, economic reform. Oh, the delusion of socialism. They've been keeping records of this. You know how many socialist organizations and societies have worked? None. They've been keeping records. Psychology. This is my field. It's one thing I know a little bit about. The schemes. 150 years of modern humanistic psychology. Do you know how many therapies there are to fix human beings today? Over a hundred. Take your pick. World War One. that was going to be the war that would end all wars. World War One. after a half a century of evolutionary thinking, look at the progress of the human race. Alfred Lord Tennyson, the great British poet, were coming into the Congress of Man. That was the thinking in 1900. And then World War I, the war to end all wars. Well, that didn't work. So then we had the League of Nations, a miserable failure. But that didn't stop. Then, then came the age of diplomacy. Do you know who the father of modern diplomacy is? Neville Chamberlain. What do we hear today? What we need is more diplomacy. That was Chamberlain's answer to Hitler. And he came back from Munich waving a piece of paper. Peace in our time. Diplomacy has fixed it. Then after World War II, let's try again. Let's have a United Nations. We're going to end international conflict and the threat of nuclear war. And the result? In the last hundred years, there have been more wars than all of the centuries of human history combined. Well, we're going to end nuclear war this year. The most powerful nation on earth gave the country who is the largest state sponsor of terrorism in the world the capability to make nuclear weapons. And if that wasn't enough, we gave them $150 billion to help them pay for it. What is the reason of this insanity? David says it in verse 2. They are taking counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. The cause of all of this is rebellion against God. Now, that is a spiritual diagnosis. You will not hear that anywhere else. You will not read that in any other book. The Bible is the only place that makes that diagnosis. The problem is not ignorance that can be fixed by education. The problem 
is not weakness that can be fixed by power. The problem is not injustice that can be fixed by more laws and more justice. The problem is human rebellion against the sovereign God of heaven and earth. The fundamental diagnosis is spiritual. Now look, David says against the Lord and against whom? His anointed. Who's that? How do you know that? You're right. David is speaking prophetically. He's speaking first about himself as the king of Israel. But he is looking down the corridor of history to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, the true anointed one of whom David is the type. How do we know that? Because in Acts chapter 4, in the very passage we just read, the early church specifically says they're against the Lord and against his Christ, against the Lord Jesus Christ. That's who the fight is about. Now, notice, at this point, someone says, well, now, wait a minute, David. I'm a skeptic. You're going to have to prove this to me. I'm a scientist. I'm a philosopher. I'm a psychologist. Where's your proof? And David says, all right, you want proof? Here's the proof, verse 3. First of all, listen to what they say. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. All you have to do is listen, says David, and what will you hear? You will hear fighting against authority. You will see an anti-law mentality. Let us burst their bonds apart and cast their cords from us. God is against us. God is hemming us in. His laws restrict us. His church is a break on human progress. The Bible is an outmoded book, and what we need to do to reach our potential as people and nations is to get rid of God and get rid of his law. Now, does anybody know where that was first put forward in human history? The first one who came up with that was Satan in the Garden of Eden. That's what he was selling to Eve. God is holding you back, Eve. He doesn't want you to reach your potential as a woman. Adam, he doesn't want you to reach your potential as a man. And he's not letting you have that tree because he knows that that's what you need to reach your potential. And they believed it. And they believe it today. Anti-law, anti-tradition, anti-authority, all in the name of freedom. Now, what is the course of all this? That's the diagnosis. Man's rebellion against God. That's where it comes from. Where is this going to lead? Well, notice in verse 4 what David says. He who sits in the heavens laughs. And the Lord holds them in derision. It leads to disaster. It leads to trouble. And it leads to judgment. God's first response is interesting. It would not necessarily be my 
guess at what the Lord does with all of that. What is the Lord's first response? He laughs. And it's a laugh of derision. It's a laugh of dismissal. It's a wave of the hand. (sighs) Years ago, I saw this. Uh, Ann and I were at a lake in another state far away. And uh, it was about lunchtime, and there were canoes and, and boats you could rent out and so forth on the lake. And a family began to set up for lunch at one of the picnic tables. And it was obvious that one of the little boys, I'm going to guess six or seven years of age, wanted to go on a boat ride. And he was pestering his father again and again, Dad, I want to go on the boat. Dad, I want to go on the boat. His father was saying, no, we're going to eat lunch. No, we're going to eat lunch. Finally, the little boy blew up. He had a temper tantrum. And he screamed at the top of his lungs so we all could hear, I want to go on the boat, and I want to go now. Now, the reaction of the father at that point was very interesting. What would you expect a father to do? He burst out laughing. I mean, what else can you do? Here you had a six-year-old fighting against his father. And he thought by yelling loud enough, by raging, he could push dad around. And dad just laughed. And that's what God does. He just laughs. Oh, the ignorance of God. They don't know about God. They don't know what they're doing. They don't know who they are opposing. It's insanity, says David. It's madness. Why is it madness? Because of who God is. He's eternal. He made them. He gave them the breath they're using to scream obscenities. Why would anyone think you could ever oppose God and win? But it's insane for two other reasons. It's insane because it's self-defeating. It's self-defeating. The law of God is good. It's holy. It's just. It's there for us and our well-being. It's placed in human life by God like, like the law of gravity. You can't get rid of it. It's there for your good. Can you imagine a group of nations, a state, a congress of people voting on a resolution to repeal the law of gravity. And yet we pass resolutions trying to repeal God's law of marriage. And it's got about as much chance of succeeding. It's insanity. Think about it. Think about the Ten Commandments. What is in there not to like? How about the Eighth Commandment? What if we, everyone, decided to obey the Eighth Commandment? There'd be no stealing. I'd live in a neighborhood like that, wouldn't you? How about the Ninth Commandment? Would you like to live in a country where no politician ever lied to you? Where you you could go through a presidential campaign and listen to the nightly news report and be assured, by golly, we're being told the truth. I'd love to live in a country like that. 
How about the sixth commandment? In the city of Chicago, 2,600 shootings have occurred since January. Do you think the citizens of Chicago might respond favorably if the mayor, the city council, got together with the police chiefs and the religious leaders, the clergy, and declared a moratorium on killing on Tuesday. Wouldn't that be cool? Tuesday, everybody's going to take the pledge, no shooting, no murder. And it worked. They did it. Would you want to live in a city like that? Why, the people of Chicago would throw a parade. They thought they died and gone to paradise. How likely is it that you think that's going to happen? No, instead, we ban the Ten Commandments from public life. Put them up in a school, your history. Put them up in a courtroom, your history. Put them up in the front of the county courthouse in the state of Oklahoma. You'll get told to tear it down. What's there not to like about the Ten Commandments? The insanity of it. The madness of it. But we're not done. David says there's, there's, another, there's another level to this. And this is the most crazy of all. The rebellion against God is in the face of God's love. It's in the face of His grace. Look at verse 5. Look at verse 6. As for me, says the Lord, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. I could see people being upset about the wrath of God if there was no way out. But God has provided the way out in the person of his own son. For God so hated the world that he kept them from their potential. No. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That whoever had a million dollars and could pay for it could get into heaven. No. Whosoever believes in Him, whatever race, whatever age, whatever gender, whatever class, whatever income, forever and ever. Whosoever should believe in the only begotten Son will not perish, but have eternal life. Forgiveness. Forgiveness for the guilty. Liberation for slaves of sin like you and me. We have a new nature. God gives us a new nature. We are born again to a new and living hope through the power of His Holy Spirit. Victory over death. Victory over death. Oh, oh, the grace of it, the love of it. And David says, why do they fight against it? The tragedy. The tragedy of rebellion against God. 
Now, what is the response of God to all this? Verses 4 through 9. We've talked about God laughing, holding them in derision. But you'll notice in verse 5, he begins with his wrath. The response of God to this rebellion is his wrath. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven, says Paul, against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. God is holy. God is almighty. He cannot overlook sin. But you'll notice that's not his only response. In verse 5, God speaks. God speaks. God does not leave us alone. He doesn't leave us in the darkness. Be still and know that I am God. Psalm 46. Do you know what that means? All the clamor, all the raging, all the screaming. God speaks and he says, shut up. Just shut up and listen. Just be quiet. Like that dad at the lake said to his little boy, be quiet and listen to me. Now it's my turn to speak. I will be exalted among the nations. What does God say? Verse 7. He says, I will tell of the decree. Now, I've got to get my plug in here for theology. Theology is a good thing. Doctrine is essential. Doctrine is important. The truth is believed is important. And what we have here is the doctrine of God's decrees. Ask Pastor Frank what that is. Ask Pastor Greg what that is. It's in all the great confessions of the faith. The doctrine of God's decrees. What is God's decree? It's God's plan. It's God's purpose, and it will be fulfilled. That's God's decree. God has a plan. God has a purpose. And he's going to do it. Now, that's important. This last week, we started some renovation or an addition onto our house. We, we have a contractor there, and, and they've done a good job so far. And Friday night, Ann and I were, were looking at what they've done so far, and it looked great. We were very happy with it until right before we went in, we noticed something. Oh, my goodness. They, they cut a hole in the gutter. There's this two-foot gap in the gutter, and there's the, the piece of the gutter on the ground. Now... You know where I went immediately. Oh, my goodness. With August and this climate, this is a disaster. And so eventually I was able to get the contractor on the phone, the builder, and I said, you know, disaster, disaster, disaster. The sky's falling, and I expected him to react like I did. Do you know what he said? No problem. Got it covered. Yeah, we, we knew that was going to happen. We knew we were going to have to do that. It's all part of the plan. And, and what we're going to do is, is plan A, and he described plan A. And then, you know, if we can't do that for some reason, then we're going to do plan B. And then we also got plan C in case that We got it covered. And that blood pressure went from 150 over a bazillion to 110. Over 70. Roger was calm. Roger was at peace. Roger was at rest. What happened? 
The gutter didn't change. Same gutter, same hole. The climate didn't change. Here comes another thunderstorm. Well, what what was different? Nothing changed on the surface. Is the world any different yesterday than it is today? No, not on the surface. Well, then what changed? God spoke. Roger, that master builder told me his plan. Got it all covered. Plan A. Already knew it. Part of the plan. And when we look at the bombs falling on our Malta, what is our response? God's plan is right on time. That's what this word says. 3,000 years ago and today, God has a plan and God acts. Verse 6 and verse 7, God sets his plan into motion and he's already done it. God's way ahead of us, brethren. Way ahead of us. Already been done. I set my king on Zion, my holy hill. When the fullness of time came, the Son of God came, born of a woman, born under the law, to take the curse of the law upon all those who trust in Him, redeeming them and counting them adopted as sons. Christ has lived. Christ has died on the cross for our sins. And He's risen from the dead according to the command of God. And He is now seated at the right hand. It's already been done. And there's nothing they can do about it. The plan's been set in motion. As Paul said in Athens, the times of ignorance God has overlooked, but now He commands all people everywhere to repent. Because He has fixed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness. How do we know? Where's the proof? By a man whom he has appointed, Christ Jesus, and of this he has given proof to all by raising him from the dead. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. All authority on heaven and earth has been given to our Lord. And in verse 8, you will see that God's victory is certain. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. God has already fixed it. The fix is in, as they say today. And the fix is not with either political party. God has already achieved the victory. And now it's just playing out before our very eyes today around the world. The kingdom of God will advance. It will be victorious. The glory of God will fill the heavens and the earth and the gates of hell cannot prevail against it. Well, what is the response? Verses 10 to 12 is the response that God calls upon the world and you and me to make to what we have just said. Notice the first response is to be warned. Verse 10, Now therefore, O kings, all of you big shots, he's talking about the establishment, whatever the establishment means for you, that's who he's talking about. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. 
He is saying to the nations and their leaders in every realm, stop and think. Think. Just stop the clamor and consider the things that God has said and done. Be warned. Second, beware. Beware. Verse 9. You, the Lord Jesus Christ, shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Verse 12, kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. That is an image there in verse 9 of an ancient king and what they typically would do to their captives. The ones who refused to bow down to them. They would take a rod of iron, they'd take a tire iron, and they'd whack the captives and their leaders on the knees. They'd break their knees. So they had to bow down, whether they wanted to or not. And that is the picture that our Lord gives of what he will do to those who persist in their rebellion against him. But what is the word that goes on? Kiss the sun. Embrace the Lord Jesus Christ, the one whom God has set on his holy hill. Embrace him with affection. Embrace him voluntarily. Make him your own. Respond to his gracious overture to save you and me from our sins and to bring us into eternal life. Kiss the sun. It's also an act of submission. Picture someone doing homage to, say, the Queen of England. My understanding is they still do that now. The new prime minister bows and kisses the hand or the the signet ring of Queen Elizabeth. That's the image. Submission to authority. And then commitment. I am yours and you are mine. Give me my marching orders. Serve the Lord, verse 10, in verse 11. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Do you see the beautiful balance there? What are we to do? Can you change our country? Can you make the bombs stop falling? William Dobby could not stop the bombs, and you and I can't stop them either. Well, then what do we do? Serve the Lord. Serve him with fear and trembling. What does that mean? Well, Pastor Frank and Pastor Greg have been preaching on that. What is the fear of the Lord? It means to serve God with respect as our great leader, our potentate, our sovereign king. Fearful of his frown. Understanding that he will discipline us as a loving father when we step out of the way. We serve him with fear and trembling like that. But we serve him with joy. This is glorious. God hasn't asked me to fix the United States. And as a psychologist, when you have your client right in front of you, it's a pleasure to know God hasn't asked you to fix him either. All I've got to do, and all you have to do, is get out of bed on Monday morning. Ask the Lord, what do you want me to do today? Just serve the Lord. 
loving the Son. And the encouragement to do it is there in verse 12. Does any of this do any good? Or is all this just a mind game? Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. I don't know what is to become of the Christian church in the United States. And you don't either. We don't know what's going to happen. We don't know what's going to happen to our country. But this we know, that God's going to take care of us. God has pledged himself to bless all those who take refuge in him. And so, brethren, remember William Dobby. He held out, and I ask you to hold out and to continue to serve him each day. You know, try to step aside so you don't get hit by a bomb. But serve him on believing that we shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong. And let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. Let us pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, the early church, when they believed these words, were filled with the Holy Spirit, a spirit of boldness, and they began preaching and speaking the Word of God with a new courage. May you fill us with that spirit again today by believing the same psalm that they believed, inspired by the same God that they believed, with the same message of the gospel that has saved us, and will save us now and forever. May we take courage in you, for Jesus' sake. Amen.